Just for the record, Lieberman came up with Joe Mentum 16 years ago. The lead starts right now. Joe Biden adding another state to the win column as Michael Bloomberg joins that long list of brand new Biden endorsers. But is the Bernie Sanders promise of revolution enough to keep this battle for the nomination going all the way to the convention? And as the White House attacks Democrats for politicizing failures in responding to the coronavirus outbreak, President Trump now tries to blame Obama for the delay in testing. It's another day where the administration seems to be struggling to clear up confusion and mix signals on responding to the virus. Then, a state of emergency in Tennessee after its deadliest tornado day in seven years. At least 24 are dead, more than a dozen more missing. The search for survivors and the stories of heroism. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. We begin with breaking news in the 2020 lead. CNN now projecting Vice President Biden has won the state of Maine. This pushes his delegate lead even further. The former vice president taking 10 states last night in a dramatic monumental shift in the Democratic race for president. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is now out and has endorsed Biden. Bloomberg saying moments ago that his focus will turn to helping Biden in defeating President Trump. Sources also telling CNN that Senator Elizabeth Warren is assessing her path forward after losing her home state, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and underperforming across the board yesterday. Her campaign had said they expected to finish in top two in at least eight contests yesterday. They did not achieve second place anywhere, even coming in a distant third in her home state of Massachusetts. So while Warren and Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard are still running, the serious competition for delegates and thus the nomination is between just two candidates, both of them white men in their late 70s, Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders, the clear frontrunner just days ago. Sanders won three Super Tuesday states and is currently ahead in the delegate-rich state of California. But while Sanders days ago appeared on a clear trajectory to attain an insurmountable delegate lead this month, Biden has managed a Lazarus-like resurrection for a campaign all but recently counted out. As CNN's Arlette Signs reports, the race for delegates is now so close, there is an increasing chance this race could go all the way to a floor fight in a contested Democratic convention. They don't call Super Tuesday for nothing. Joe Biden basking in an historic political comeback. And we're told, well, when you got to Super Tuesday, it'd be over. Well, it may be over for the other guy. In the wake of Super Tuesday, a major jolt to the race coming as billionaire Michael Bloomberg dropped his presidential bid and officially endorsed Biden. I'm glad to say I endorse Joe Biden, and I hope you will join me in working to make him the next president of the United States of America. This after Bloomberg poured more than a half a billion dollars of his own fortune into the race and only came up with one victory in American Samoa. Let's do it for Joe! It's the latest sign of the more moderate candidates coalescing around the former vice president. After a rocky start to his campaign, Biden racking up wins in 10 Super Tuesday states with a sweep across the South, overtaking Bernie Sanders in the fight for delegates, with California still up for grabs. I'm here to report, we are very much alive! Sanders' victories came in his home state of Vermont, Colorado, and Utah, and he's leading in California, where the campaign hopes to rack up delegates. But there are questions if Sanders can expand the electorate, as the contest has quickly turned into a two-person race. Joe has his ideas, his record, his vision for the future. I have mine, and I look forward to a serious debate. 
Sanders already looking to the contest ahead, running new TV ads targeting Biden and attempting to tie himself to President Obama. Great authenticity, great passion, and is fearless. One candidate's fate up in the air, Elizabeth Warren, who had a disappointing showing on Tuesday, including a brutal loss in her home state of Massachusetts. Warren assessing the state of her campaign. But one of her advisors says her biggest decision isn't whether to end her campaign, but whether to throw her support behind Biden or Sanders. Now, Bloomberg spoke with Biden today and offered to help in any way that he can. And Bloomberg not only has a massive amount of money, but he already has existing field operations across the country, including in many states in those contests to come. The Bloomberg team is working to figure out how they can leverage that to help Biden. Jake. All right. Arlette signs with the Biden campaign in Los Angeles. Thanks. Let's chew over all this. Uh, Maddie, let me start with you. Um, You know, this is a two-person race, and I think it's fair to say that Biden has momentum and Sanders has grassroots supports and organization. What does Sanders need to do to go the distance? The number one thing Bernie Sanders needs to do is to basically fulfill his campaign pledge and strategy, which is, I'm the guy who's going to turn out young people, people of color, people who've never voted before. That's why you should vote for me in the general, not just in the primary. That's his strategy against Trump. If he can't do it in the primaries, and he's been failing to do it in the primaries, even in the states he was winning, in Nevada, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, we weren't seeing big boosts in turnout among young people. And now, on Super Tuesday, it was disastrously bad for him. In a lot of the states he won and lost, the turnout was lower this time around than it was in 2016. I don't know how you explain that. I mean, there's a massive disconnect between the amazing rallies he's holding and the energy we clearly see everywhere and the actual turnout on the day. The other thing he needs to do is go up head to head with Joe Biden because he knows he can take Joe Biden on his record. The problem is there's not another debate till March the 15th. You know, I never thought we'd all be crying for another TV debate after the last one. Well, it's but, a CNN debate, so you, I yeah, know you're crying. Yeah, I know you want there to be. The, 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 the CBS one wasn't so great, the last one outing, but he has to wait till March 15th, and there's a bunch of primaries before then, including Crucial State of Michigan. Right. He really can't afford to lose. He won that one against Hillary Clinton in 2016. But many makes a good point, Karen, which is the theory of the case for Sanders, mm-hmm. that he can bring out all these new voters, alienated, disaffected voters, working-class voters, young people, it has not, and he conceded this today, he, Sanders admitted this, it has not really happened. I mean, he's, look, he's doing great. He still might be the nominee, who knows? Right. But he, the theory of the case is being really tested. Absolutely. Look, I think he was trying to also do the Obama strategy. It's what Stacey Abrams tried to do in Georgia when she ran for governor, which is we're going to expand the electorate. We're not just going to, you know, we're going to turn people out and we're going to grow this electorate. And he hasn't been able to do that. You're right. And these younger voters, it reminds me a bit of uh, Howard Dean in 2004, right, where everybody thought he was going to do so well because he was having such a great turnout. Yeah, people event. loved him, the rallies. But you've yeah. got to turn, that has to shift to voters. You've got to get those people to the polls. And look, I think the other thing that we have to acknowledge is that, I mean, we had tremendous turnout yesterday. You've got to give the vice president his due here. And I think part of what was happening is almost the reverse of what Sanders wanted. He did motivate or something was motivating people to come out and say, we are going to come together and coalesce around someone that we think can beat Donald Trump. I think the test for Joe Biden is he's had a good five days He's got to prove he can keep it up. That's right. I haven't seen that yet. He's still a rather fragile uh, establishment candidate. Let's talk about Bloomberg for a second, Scott, because he has a lot of money, determination. His organization is not going away. Uh, And after Trump attacked him on Twitter, uh, Bloomberg wrote back to him, uh, see you soon, Donald. And he included this clip uh, from the Star Wars films. (laughs) 
Your power's a weak old man. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Spoiler alert, he strikes him down, uh, and Obi-Wan actually becomes more powerful than you could possibly imagine. Now, it's probably Elizabeth Warren who struck down Mike Bloomberg, uh, not Trump. But there is, there is an argument to be made that actually he is now going to be more potent because he, he, all the money, the billions of dollars, the organization, the data, that's all still going to be used against Trump. But you won't have the NDA issues, stop and frisk. Uh, spying on Muslims, et cetera. Well, I, I never thought the Democrats were going to hurt for money in this election. I mean, really? Okay. I, no, I mean, look, Donald Trump's going to have plenty of money. I mean, look at what the Democrats' uh, candidates for senator are raising around the country. I mean, once there's a nominee, I've just assumed Democrats would have plenty of money to run whatever campaign they wanted. Yes, Bloomberg has this uh, apparatus. It's not as simple, by the way, as just handing it over. It can't because of campaign finance. No, no, he, he can do a super PAC. He can turn sure. the Bloomberg organization sure. into a super PAC for Biden. But again, I don't think there's any... I don't think there was ever going to be any shortage of, uh, of fuel for the Democratic campaign. So I, don't, I guess I don't worry about this as much. Mm. Also, all the places where Bloomberg had this amazing operation totally failed. All the places where Biden had nothing, he won. <laughs> and so everybody uh -huh. says this is an amazing apparatus that did great work. Yeah, I mean, did okay, it? <laughs> fair enough. Uh, uh, let me ask you, Alice. Elizabeth Warren is facing a lot of pressure to drop out. Obviously, she didn't do well. Um, she obviously, uh, there are progressives, Sanders supporters, who think she needs to drop out so we can consolidate the the Sanders progressive wing, just the way that the non-Sanders moderates or whatever you want to call them did. Here's Senator Sanders uh, asked about that earlier today. We did speak on the phone uh, a few hours ago. And what Senator Warren told me is that she is assessing her campaign. She has not made any decisions as of this point. What do you think she should do? The, if she wants to do what's best for the progressive movement, she would get out and certainly throw all of her support, not just uh, her, she herself, but her list and her data and her supporters and endorsers behind uh, Bernie Sanders. But here's the thing. That's hard. When you're out there 24-7 for months on end fighting for yourself and you being the vessel for whether it is the progressive movement or the moderate or the Republican or conservative, it's really hard, first of all, to make that tough decision to get out. I've been in the room when candidates have had to make that call to get out, and that's hard. And to immediately throw with your With Ted Cruz on, most recently, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. With Ted Cruz and, and then with Santorum and, and with Huckabee in, in 08, it's a tough decision, but to immediately, as soon as you pull off that, that Band-Aid to put your support behind someone else, it's a tough call. I think that would be the best thing. And let me just say, I commend all of the other Democratic candidates, Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, and Bloomberg, for, for being able to take themselves out of this and do what's best for the party, because the only way they will galvanize the Democratic Party and stop uh, Bernie Sanders is for them to get together. It all started with Jim... Jim Clyburn, and that just really helped set off what I think was smart for the Democratic Party to stop saying. Everyone stick around. we got more to talk about. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation. Coming up, Bernie Sanders promised he was the candidate to expand the Democratic Party. It's not clear that's the case. If you look at voter turnout, we're going to dive into the numbers. Then, new guidelines for coronavirus testing as the number of cases rises in the U.S., the disruptions we're already seeing in day-to-day -day life, and what you need to know. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Lead. Today, Bernie Sanders embracing former President Barack Obama for the first time in a campaign ad as he tries to rebound from Super Tuesday, where he lost 10 out of 14 states to Joe Biden. 
Bernie is somebody who has the virtue of saying exactly what he believes, great authenticity, great passion, and is fearless. Some exit polls show some warning signs for Sanders when you compare the results from last night to his results in 2016. David Chalian's at the magic wall. Uh, David, when you look at some of the key groups that Sanders needed support from, how did he do? Yeah, we'll take a look at some of those key demographics. This is the state of play right now. Joe Biden with a 54 delegate lead over Bernie Sanders as the votes are still getting counted. But Jake, we looked at non-college educated whites in a couple of key states. Take a look in 2016. This is a key part of Bernie Sanders' argument of why he thinks he's best equipped to defeat Donald Trump. It's, it's a group that Trump performs well with, and in a Democratic primary context, it was a Sanders strength. Hillary Clinton won North Carolina four years ago, but with these non-college-educated whites, Sanders trounced Clinton. Take a look at non-college-educated whites in North Carolina last night. Look at that. Sanders went from 57 support four years ago to 32%. Joe Biden actually edged him out by one point. I want to show you the same group in Massachusetts. Four years ago, 60-40, he wins non-college educated whites against Hillary Clinton. Take a look. Last night, there's Joe Biden, 42% to 34% for Bernie Sanders. This is clear erosion among a key group. Same thing uh, that we see with independent voters. Yet another calling card for Sanders when he says why he's best equipped to beat Trump. Take a look at North Carolina again. Independent voters four years ago, he was way up, 58-34 over Hillary Clinton. North Carolina independent voters last night, look at that. He still wins them, but only by five points. He's down at 34%. I'll show you the same thing in Oklahoma. Four years ago in Oklahoma, independent voters, 69% to 21% Sanders versus Clinton. Take a look at Oklahoma last night. Again, he still wins them, but only by 11 points, and he went from 69% down to 33%. That's fascinating. And uh, we know the, the Maine results just came in, uh, David, and, and he lost Maine uh, this year. I know four years ago he won Maine. Uh, compare the states that he performed strongly in four years ago to, to how he did last night. Yeah, I'll show you Maine uh, in just a moment, but I just want to go back to 2016 and let's start in Minnesota here. It was a caucus state last time, right? It was a primary now. Uh, Bernie Sanders, by the way, was part of those reforms uh, and didn't want more primaries, but that's how it sorted itself out. Look at all of this Sanders territory, 61.7%. Take a look at all that dark Biden blue. Last night, 38.6%. Let me show you in Oklahoma. Uh, I'll show you the same uh, thing here. Primary four years ago, look at that. That was Sanders territory. He won with 51.9%. Oklahoma last night, entirely Joe Biden, not a single county uh, for Bernie Sanders. And you mentioned Maine. Maine, four years ago, here it was, all Sanders territory. Last night, you see as, it, as the map is still filling in and we've projected it, a lot more Biden dark blue, 34% to 32.9%, Jake. That's fascinating. A real erosion with uh, non-college educated white voters and independents. Uh, thank you, David Chalian. Let's talk about this. Uh, and Karen, we should point out, and I know I heard you chuckling a little bit, uh, when Sanders says his new ad in Florida, uh, talking with him and Barack Obama, looking yeah. rather chummy. The truth is that they've had a tense relationship. Uh, I think some of those clips were from 2006, when uh, Barack Obama uh, you know, was a state senator, possibly, uh, I, I think, <laughs> or, or maybe even before then. But in any case, sure. uh, they're... they're this is an attempt of, of Sanders, we should give him credit, for trying to reach out and expand his base. 
Yeah, but here's the thing. Black voters aren't buying it, right? They know that Joe Biden was the guy who had Barack Obama's back for eight years, and that was not Bernie Sanders. What I was sort of chuckling at, though, is interesting. You know, one of the things we saw in the exit polls coming out of South Carolina was the number of black voters who said they want to return to Obama-era policies. Clearly, they do not see. So everybody knows that Obama is an important factor in terms of the black vote. But you can, Biden can, can can own that legacy in a way that Sanders just can't. And so I just was chuckling at it because it's like it's similar to what I think um, Bloomberg was trying to do. It's like you can put whatever you want in an advertisement, but it's whether or not voters think you're credible or not as to whether or not it's going to work. And I just don't think people are going to buy it. And Maddie, we were talking about this in the break. Uh, Sanders needs to expand his base. I mean, that's one of the yep. things he needs to do. Uh, and look, his his politics is uh Rigid is one word for it. A determined and consistent it would be a, a nicer way to look at yep. it. But like, if you assess that all the other Democrats are corrupt and tools of the establishment, how do you expand your base? Yeah, I think it was impressive, by the way, that Barack Obama went from endorsing Bloomberg to Sanders. But <laughs> quite an interesting switch. He's, a bold, he's always been a bold politician, Barack. Um, on the base issue, yeah, look, it's not just the base and voters that we talked in part one about. You know, how do you go beyond young people, Latino voters? Uh, Karen talked about African American. Although, to be fair, a lot of those are conservative Southern Black voters. Black voters are not a monolith, as we know, like any other community. But I would say this: it's also about winning over kind of people in the party. And kind of Clyburn in South Carolina helped give Biden that push. And Clyburn's saying today. Uh, Bernie Sanders never reached out to me. He never even tried to get my That's vote, stunning. which I think is a mistake. And I get it. Bernie Sanders has been this insurgent for so long. But for a few weeks, he was the front runner and he didn't behave as the front runner. And I think now he's back to being an insurgent again. He has to find the right balance here. I hope he works hard on Elizabeth Warren, because if Elizabeth Warren pulls out and does not endorse him, I think that will be a huge blow. Mm. And Alice, in most cases, Democratic turnout last night exceeded 2016 levels. 200,000 votes more in North Carolina, 700,000 in Texas, more than 50, uh, 500,000 in Virginia. Something of a warning sign for the Trump campaign. This is going to be a tough fight. Certainly, there is a lot of enthusiasm amongst in, in the Democratic Party, and they are very engaged. And a lot of that is because there are two diametrically opposed lanes in the Democratic Party, certainly the progressive lane and the more moderate lane. I might have suggested to Bernie Sanders if he was going to engage in a, an Obama bromance. He may have done that before Super <laughs> Tuesday and not after the fact. Right, before South, yeah. South Carolina would have yeah. been good. <laughs> right. And there's a little difference. And obviously, 2016, there was a bilateral choice between Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Now there's a multi-candidate slugfest. But what we do see in some of the numbers David mentioned and in the, the exopolls, Sanders' big calling card is free college tuition, college debt um, forgiveness, and those younger voters did not come out for him. They did not come out in the numbers that he anticipated and promised and many expected, which goes to show he's not building his base. Joe Biden is, just simply by being the more moderate candidate and the ability to bring on the other candidates and certainly the minority vote and the younger vote, he is building his base, and that's going to be a tremendous advantage for him mm. as he moves through the through the primary and the general. Now, Scott, Joe Biden has a lot of weaknesses as a candidate, uh, and this race is not over. But uh, do you think of the two left that, that Biden will be a stronger opponent for President Trump than Sanders? Yeah, look, I think in, in some ways he's stronger. In some ways he may be a little weaker. I, I'm not sure it's a, it's a total trade-off. I mean— you know, the one thing Trump had that I thought Sanders had was this ability to move, you know, people maybe non-traditional. Now, it didn't manifest itself in greater turnout. Uh, so maybe we're not right about that. Uh, I do think the one weakness for Biden having had run against Sanders, if, if Biden goes on and gets it, is he has been pulled to the left. I mean, I think there's no question at this point 
based on the positions he's taken in the primary, he would have to govern to the left of where the Obama administration was on immigration and on a number of different issues. Trump and the Republicans will use that as Biden says, hey, I'm a moderate. Let's return to the old days. They're going to say not so fast. You can't you can't whitewash what happened in the primary. All right. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. Coming up, mixed signals over coronavirus testing. Why the Trump administration is attempting to clean up confusion after announcing one million people could get tested for the virus. That's next. We have breaking news for you in our health lead. California just reported its first coronavirus death. That brings the total to 11 people who have died from the virus in the United States, including 10 deaths in Washington state alone. There are now at least 149 confirmed coronavirus cases in this country. The House of Representatives is set to vote today on an $8.3 billion funding deal aimed at battling the coronavirus. As CNN's Stephanie Elam reports, the deadly outbreak is only expected to get worse. New Yorkers are preparing. The iconic New York City subway system is getting scrubbed. This after the state has confirmed six cases of coronavirus, including a 50-year-old attorney. His wife has also tested positive. His 20-year-old son has also tested positive. His daughter has tested positive. And his neighbor who drove him to the hospital, also tested positive. The New York City schools those children attended are now temporarily closed as a precaution. Nationwide, the total number of positive coronavirus cases is at least 149. The number of deaths? At least 11. One in California and 10 in Washington state. Five of those who died there were residents of Life Care Center of Kirkland, the long-term care facility at the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in Washington state. Day and night, ambulances pull up to take residents away. Families of the Life Care residents are anxious. They want testing and more information. We don't know exactly what's happening. Why aren't they testing our families? And that, that's the big one. And also, having been there with our families, are we at risk. Multiple other cases are also connected to the facility, including one presumptive positive case in North Carolina. This person traveled via Raleigh-Durham International Airport on February 22nd after visiting a patient at Life Care Center in Kirkland. We are uh, happy to report that uh, they limited their time um, out in the, in the public. In Los Angeles, the county is declaring a public health emergency. In the last 48 hours alone, the L.A. County Department of Public Health has confirmed six new cases of the novel coronavirus in our community. Public health officials, however, trying to reassure the nation. The bottom line of what we've announced is if your doctor or public health official think you ought to get tested, you're going to be able to be tested. And we just got an update from King County that tells us that there is another death that they are attributing to the outbreak here at this nursing home facility. That would take that number up to six people who used to be residents here at this facility. Beyond that, King County Department of Public Health also saying that they do not have enough tests right now of the, for the coronavirus for the people who actually want to get the testing done. However, because there's been a lot of discussion about the price, Jake, they're saying it is free if you get it done through their department. Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam in Kirkland, Washington, just outside Seattle. Thank you so much. Vice President Mike Pence is about to give an update on the White House's efforts to battle the coronavirus outbreak. The briefing comes as lawmakers increasingly express frustration over the Trump administration's lack of clarity about the number of tests that are available. The biggest question 
testing, when and where. They could not answer how soon people would be able to get the tests. There need to be more test kits available. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House for us. Caitlin, what, what do we expect uh, Vice President Pence to say? Well, Jake, as Stephanie just laid out, testing here has really become one of the number one issues related to this. So we are expecting the vice president and the coronavirus task force members that he appears with to face questions over that, especially facing uh, in light of a comment that the president made earlier today during a meeting with airline CEOs, where essentially he sought to place blame on the Obama administration by saying that they had made this decision that he had to undo that really was detrimental, he said, to their ability to test this nationwide, make that testing a lot easier and really and ease those strict restrictions that he said had been placed on this. But when they were asked for clarity, uh, you saw the vice president, Mike Pence, and the FDA commissioner or the CDC commissioner really seek to say that essentially there was this rule put in place that didn't let these privately run labs and, you know, use these tests that they have developed before they had been submitted to the FDA for a review. But, Jake, we are being told that there was no rule like that put in place during the Obama administration. So it seems like their blame here has been misplaced about that. And that is likely something that they are going to face questions about when they're speaking with reporters, because what you've seen from the White House lately is they're really trying to put a face on this to say, yes, we are adequately prepared to handle this. That's why you've been seeing them hold these briefings every single day. And we should note the vice president is going to visit Washington state tomorrow. That's right. The vice president going to Olympia tomorrow. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Some breaking news now. United Airlines becomes the first U.S. carrier to cut back on domestic flights because of the coronavirus. Should Americans be worried about flying now? Two two top doctors in the country will weigh in next. Stay with us. We're back with more breaking news in the health lead. United Airlines becoming the first American airline to pull back on its U.S. flight schedule because of the coronavirus. According to an email to employees, United says there's been a sharp drop in demand. Joining me now to discuss, Dr. Zeke Emanuel, a former Obama White House health policy advisor, also with me, Dr. James Phillips. He's assistant professor of emergency medicine at George Washington University. Uh, Dr. Phillips, let me start with you. People are worried. Uh, they're panicking in some cases. They're canceling trips. They're canceling flights. That's why uh, United is, is canceling flights, because of a drop in demand. Um, what do you say to Americans who are changing their habits? And, and, and are they, I mean, are they overreacting? Well, it's always difficult to say if people are overreacting. But the good news about flights is we do have data on this. People have studied virus transmission on airplanes for, for years. Uh, just like in the general public, it's all about proximity to somebody with the virus and the amount of time you spend in proximity to them. And so on airplanes, it's been shown that if you're within two rows of somebody that has it, you might be at risk. People wonder about the air quality all the time, but what we know is the the average airplane exchanges its air 20 to 30 times per hour Mm -hmm. through a HEPA filter that is small enough of a filter to, to take those particles out. So there is some risk, typically that droplet sort of risk that we talk about with this virus, but as far as the air quality goes, that should be pretty good. And uh, Zeke, let me just ask you, I mean, uh, did we go through this with SARS and MERS and swine flu and Ebola? This, and I know they're all different in terms of in, infection rate and also in terms of what they do to the human body. But I, I don't recall it being people being this concerned. Well, first of all, Ebola is a completely different okay. situation. It was over there, not here. We flew a patient in uh, uh, oh, well, a patient came to the United States right, and then Texas, hospitalized, right. and then some of the healthcare workers came back. So that's a very different case. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty around SARS. Uh, a lot of patients ended up in Canada. 
Um, but again, that was a very limited uh, exposure. It wasn't going out in the community. There wasn't the sense that anyone in the community uh, could have it, that simply knowing someone who'd been to Iran or Italy uh, would transmit the virus. So I think this reaction is, uh, you know, probably more reasonable given the circumstances to people. And I think the drop in demand that United is seeing, um, we're seeing, you know, conferences canceled all over the place, companies going to uh, Internet, Zoom, instead of meeting face to face unless it's absolutely necessary. You are seeing a lot of behavior change uh, in response to it. Um, You know, and I think one of the things is if you get exposed and, you know, there's a chance you might have it, there's a 14 day uh, incubation period where you're out of circulation. And that I think also people are worried about, uh, even if the illness turns out to be mild for them. And so I think people are taking all this into account. Let me just add one other thing. There's a lot of uncertainty here, right, we which don't is know a lot. very different than the regular flu uh, <clears throat> situation for most people, even with H1N1. And I think that uncertainty always breeds caution. Um, and I notice, you know, United Airlines cutting down, you know, the, it drop, dropping the uh, flights because of demand. You know, the Fed cutting its rate isn't going to change that demand because right. it's not about how much money people have. It's about I'm not getting on that plane because I don't know what the situation is. And there's a, there's a lot of concern right now about the Trump administration, how they're handling it specifically when it comes to the number of testing kits. Obviously, CDC had difficulty coming up with an applicable uh, testing kit. They have testing kits, tens of thousands of them overseas in places like South Korea. Um, what is the problem in the United States and how concerned are you? Well, the, the, that's a multifactorial question. So what I'll tell you the concern for me as an emergency physician who, when I leave here tonight, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to see patients overnight in the emergency department. And the good news is, compared to the last time I had a chance to speak on CNN two days ago, we have testing now. We can send those locally here in Washington, At GW, D.C. You in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Our Department of Health has, has that capability now, and that's great. That's just a sign that the, the, the trickle down, the, the normal dissemination of testing from the CDC to our local health departments is, is making progress. Now, obviously, the ideal situation will be when our own labs and our own hospitals can run those tests in two hours and get me the results just like a, a rapid strep test or a, or a mm-hmm. flu test like we have right now. And that's coming. Um, were there some delays? I don't know. That's, there's so many things that go into it, it's tough to say. And if we're comparing it to tests in other countries, you know, we have a certain standard of quality here, and I think that we're also trying to make sure that our quality is as high as it can be. And quickly, uh, Trump today said the Obama administration made a decision on testing that turned out to be detrimental to what we're doing. We undid that decision a few days ago, so testing can take place in a much more accurate and rapid fashion. Do you know anything about what he's talking about? I have to say, Jake, I don't know what he's referring to, and clearly the FDA could have gotten ahead of that problem, you know. Months ago. Well, at least a month ago in January, right, they put the travel restriction in. And so, you know, that, as many of us have been saying, that was time to prepare. Part of it is preparing the test kits and getting the regulatory situation in line for that. And frankly, I just don't know what the rule is that they're referring to that Obama put in place. They might have put in place for a good reason. And this needs to be adjusted. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Emanuel and Dr. Phillips. Appreciate your both being here. A controversial abortion case making its way to the Supreme Court today. Why conservatives are accusing Chuck Schumer of threatening Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. And Schumer's response to those accusations, that's next. (laughs) 
I want to tell you, Gorsuch. I want to tell you, Kavanaugh. You have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. And our national lead Republicans are accusing Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer of threatening the two conservative Supreme Court justices who heard a controversial abortion case this morning. Schumer's spokesman says that Senator Schumer was just talking about political blowback for Republicans. All of this bigger picture is over the debate about whether Louisiana can require doctors who perform abortions to have to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Advocates for the law say it's meant to increase public safety. Critics say it is a thinly veiled attempt to restrict abortion. And if the Louisiana law takes effect, only one doctor in the state would be able to perform abortions. I'm joined now by CNN's Joan Biskupic. Joan, four years ago, the Supreme Court struck down a similar law in Texas. Um, Back then, Justice Kennedy was on the court. He voted with the liberal uh, majority. Um, So why are they hearing the case now? Is it just because Kennedy's been replaced uh, by a more conservative justice? Well, that's certainly the backdrop. But what brought it up immediately was the fact that a regional appeals court upheld the Louisiana law, minimizing the Supreme Court's 2016 decision in the Texas case, which involved a very similar law. So the justices essentially had to take this case. Uh, They could have summarily reversed what the Fifth Circuit did. But instead, they took it up. And certainly, as you saw from the atmosphere at the Supreme Court today, both sides are very anxious about what will happen with these two new Trump appointees. And the main discussion that went on in the courtroom over an hour worth of oral arguments was how different could this Louisiana law possibly be from Texas? And will the Supreme Court be in any kind of position to suddenly undermine its precedent from just four years ago and uphold this law? If the Supreme Court rules in favor of the Louisiana law, does that set a table for a situation where basically states will be able to restrict and regulate abortion to the degree that it is essentially illegal or almost illegal, undermining Roe v. Wade? Okay, it would undermine Roe v. Wade, which is the 1973 landmark that made abortion legal nationwide and undermine the 1992 case that reaffirmed that. But just so our viewers don't get the wrong idea, abortion will not suddenly be illegal nationwide. But this will be an invitation to more state regulations. And right now, the regulations we're talking about are on physicians and on clinics. What could happen is that states might try more ban type uh, regulations that would outlaw abortion at certain points. And that would become the ultimate test of Roe v. Wade. Right now, what's at stake is sort of access, especially for poor women and women in rural areas who would have to travel so far to find a physician who would meet the kind of criteria we're talking about uh, in this Louisiana law. So it it has real world consequences, but it's not going to uh, immediately overturn Roe v. Wade. And as you you know well, Jake, it's going to come down to Chief Justice John Roberts. Once Anthony Kennedy left the court Mm -hmm. in 2018, that middle position on abortion is the chief's. And let me just tell you, the chief justice has never in his life struck down an abortion regulation. This might be the first time or it might not. All right. To be continued, Joan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A trail of destruction and tragedy in Tennessee. At least 24 people are dead. Dozens more missing. We'll have the latest details on the search and rescue efforts next. Stay with us. International lead, a desperate search is underway for at least 17 people still missing in Tennessee after a series of tornadoes ravaged parts of the Nashville area Tuesday morning. 
At least 24 people in the state have been confirmed dead, as CNN's Amara Walker reports. Amid the tragic loss, there are some harrowing tales of survival. Residents had a few minutes of warning before hunkering down in the storm. By daylight, at least 24 people killed in the deadliest day for tornadoes in Tennessee in seven years. This has been the most devastating storm of my career. Oh my God, they don't get in here. An EF3 twister tore through East Nashville, Donaldson and Mount Juliet with winds up to 165 miles per hour. A mother escaped with her five-year-old daughter and husband with only 30 seconds to spare, her home badly damaged. There's just, there've been a lot of people helping out them, a lot of strangers, people I've never met before, just, just showing up to help us uh, clean up. And you can see inside this church, winds ripped off bricks and opened up a hole. Putnam County had the most storm-related deaths. Of the 18 dead there, five were young children. This woman in Putnam County rode out the storm with her four kids in a closet. You could feel it like lifting the house and shaking the house while we were in it. You could feel the wind coming underneath the door. It was shaking everything in here, and I thought for sure that it was just going to take the whole house up. Many people lost their homes, including this newlywed couple. It kind of just felt, feels like it's all been taken from you, and... I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get back on our feet. Many more trying to pick up the pieces. My house is all gone, except the bedroom is still standing, but all the windows are blown out of it. So it's been home for a long time. I guess we'll have to find a home somewhere else now. And Jake, it really is a surreal feeling seeing these big chunks of homes, uh, parts of them missing along with the tops of trees. I also do want to mention uh, that it's been such a heartwarming experience for, for me and the crew, uh, seeing neighbors, helping neighbors all day long, all the work that's being done in these neighborhoods. These are volunteers who are helping to clean up the debris. That is the generosity and resiliency of Tennessee. Back to you. All right, Emerald Walker, thanks so much. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show. At the lead, CNN, our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.